0: Get Katan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of our podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code MOM at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash xfi. Hey, this is Samantha. And this is Annie. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: So, hello, everybody. I'm due to a scheduling mix-up in our publication, our massive meta-sheet of what has been published and what will publish. And we've been ahead of schedule, so... We have been ahead we, of schedule. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff
0: waiting to be put out there.
1: There is. But because of that, sometimes some confusion happens. Right. So you're going to hear in this episode us mention two women, Coco and Kim, who you probably do not know who they are.
0: <laughs> not yet.
1: <laughs> yes, not yet. Uh, we'll mention them a couple of times because we recorded an interview with them prior to this interview that is in this episode. Right. And they put us in touch with um, the woman that we're interviewing in this one, Helen Perry. So keep on the lookout or the listen out, however you want to put that, for a future episode featuring Coco and Kim, who are fantastic, amazing, about sex and gender-based violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Right. Sounds like a superhero team. They should be. They are. Listen, I believe Coco on her resume had an, a line item that said... Underwater helicopter escape training? <laughs> I'm not messing with that, okay? So that means she's definitely going to
0: survive any of the scenarios, so, worst-case scenario bits.
1: Yes, which with the news as it is today, very, She may need that. Very useful. <laughs> very useful. But today we are talking with Helen Perry, who is the Executive Director of Global Response Management. And Helen is also amazing. She mm-hmm. is running a project in Matamoros, Mexico. For those not familiar, this is a town of half a million population-wise, um, less than 500 feet past the Mexican border across a bridge from Brownsville, Texas, where 3,000 refugees and asylum seekers are gathered, many in need of medical attention, many without food, water, or bathrooms, no access to basic hygiene. Some have been there for several months. This is the largest refugee camp on the U.S. border. And before we get further into this, trigger warning for discussion around violence, sexual assault, trafficking, and generally bad conditions, and some of it is really grim, so just a heads up yeah. there.
0: There's a little bit of detail in there, so prepare yourself, um, but it is an important conversation. Perry, so, yes. And to make matters worse, it's a hotbed for the mafias and rival drug gangs. In one interview, The interviewees described it as the most dangerous place in Mexico, and the U.S. government has advised tourists not to visit the area due to violence and kidnappings. Only a few a day are allowed to seek asylum in the U.S. in a policy known as metering, and over 1,000 are on the list managed by Mexican officials. Some are asked for bribes in exchange
1: for a place on that list, and some are kidnapped and extorted, unfortunately. Yes, very unfortunately. And Helen is going to get more into this, but just so we're all on the same page when we get started. In January 2019, the U.S. expanded a policy requiring asylum seekers to wait in Mexico, colloquially called Remain in Mexico. Refugees are given a date to return for an immigration court hearing where the U.S. government doesn't have to provide a lawyer, and getting one can be time-consuming and expensive. Some asylum seekers in Texas were sent back to Mexico. The U.S. also threatened to impose tariffs if Mexico did not start cracking down on migrants, which is a term they frequently use. From January to September of 2019, only 11 were granted asylum. And each day, the government sends dozens of refugees to Matamoros. Many sleep outside until they can find a tent. Since there aren't showers, many bathe and wash their clothes in a nearby river, a river that once washed up a headless corpse and as we're all hearing in the news about COVID-19 coronavirus this is a really big concern there right. as well because it would spread so rapidly and tensions with the locals have resulted in relocating of tents
0: right and some parents are so desperate that they're sending their children across the border alone and children don't have to go through the same level of bureaucracy Rochelle Garza of the American Civil Liberties Union of Texas said of the situation, these parents have been forced to consider an unthinkable choice to save their children by sending them into the U.S. alone or to keep them in northern Mexico where they'll be exposed to severe illness, kidnapping, torture, and rape. Um, And you have to remember for a lot of these families, they fled to protect their children. And you will also hear in the interview where she specifically talks about a parent bringing her child through all of these back areas to come to this refugee area and all of the suffering they yeah. had to go to and how normalized it was in stating that in comparison to what they would have had to face, it was easier. Yeah. And it's just so heartbreaking. I think this is a lot of the conversations that we've had every day when we talk about why are they putting their children doing it? And why aren't they doing this legally? And we have these conversations constantly and we have to realize they are refugees. They are seeking a refuge. They are trying to find a place of safety and you will do whatever you can. Even if it means your own death in hopes that your child can have a chance. Just I just find that heartbreaking. And I think that's part of the we are divisive debate that continues to happen about this level of, well, if you left your children alone and forgetting what the cost
1: truly was. Right. And those are the stakes of the the conversation that we had with Helen, which we will get into. But first, we're going to get into a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get started today at betterhelp.com slash momstuff. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash momstuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help. This episode of Stuff I Never Told You is brought to you by Catan. This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code MOM at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So now that we've set the stage a little bit, let's let's talk to someone who's actually there and who's actually on the ground and seeing these things. Let's get into our interview with Helen.
2: I'm Helen Perry, and I am the Executive Director for Global Response Management, which is a 501c3 international medical nonprofit dedicated to providing emergency trauma and pre-hospital medicine in areas of the world that are predominantly impacted by war conflict
1: and disaster and how did you get into that
2: oh man so i was in the army for i'm actually still technically in the army but i did five years on active duty and then i i went into the reserve and there's like a whole big long sidebar story there my husband was also in the marines and he got injured in afghanistan and so uh he had a, a full traumatic brain injury and ended up losing all his memory so i ended up leaving active duty and going to the reserves, yada, yada, all that kind of stuff. And so when I was actually finishing grad school, you know, I had done all of the specifically war trauma while I was in the military, which is sort of a very specific subset of trauma medicine. And I got an email asking me if I would be interested in going to Mosul, Iraq and helping to run trauma stabilization points for civilians who were injured by the fight to push out ISIS. And I was like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I had been watching all of, you know the news and you always see these videos of like people and you know, like these babies in Syria being pulled out of the rubble, you know, and, and all these terrible things. And it's like, you know, I had just, it had been weighing on me like so much of the, the months that were kind of surrounding like me getting this email. So I did, I, I was on a three week break from grad school between semesters, like finishing up. And so I went over and I worked in Iraq with the organization. And I, I, loved it. I loved their mentality. I loved that. I loved sort of their work ethic, and that they were dedicated to going into these areas where traditional organizations really were not capable of operating, um, and then providing literally life saving care that they would not get anywhere else. So yeah, and then I, I, and I stuck with it. I just you know I kept offering to volunteer with the organization. Uh, they asked me to be on the board of directors. So I did that. Then I started working, uh, and like actually getting involved more in the day-to-day business. So then like a year ago, I started actually running the organization. And then uh, about four or five months ago, I took over formally as the executive director.
0: Wow. Well, congratulations. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like a heavy duty. Yeah. Yeah, it's,
2: uh, it's intense. To give you the context, I uh, I actually had a, a very cushy job at a private hospital as a nurse practitioner, and I walked away from a six figure salary with no guarantee that I was going to get paid, and was like, you know what, like this is this is worth doing and dedicating my time to, and so I turned down six figures and and came to do this full time, sort of on a on a hope and a dream that we would be able to to sort of. Get to a point where we could actually pay people to to do some of the day to day running of the organization. So um, yeah, it's been
0: a huge leap of faith. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you first and foremost because uh, that's an amazing calling. I guess that's <laughs> that's yeah. the best thing. Like, just falling into that and the huge responsibility and, whew, mm-hmm. whew, like, I'm not gonna lie, as a social worker, that kind of had me for a minute. I was like, oh god, she's doing all the things. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Before I actually really got involved in the work, you know, I, I just kind of assumed that like these things were getting done. These areas, you know, were getting the help that they needed. I mean, if you get on the news and you sort of assume like, Oh, somebody else has got that, right? You know. Right. And and what I realized is like that that's like is like not the case at all. I mean, it is that is the farthest thing from the truth. In fact, most of these areas that are impacted by war, it's the exact opposite. Groups don't go in because they don't feel that they can address the risks appropriately. And you know, when you're talking about military veteran to his, you know, we've been trained our whole career to work in these environments. And so, yes, yeah, so that's what we've done, and and we've done it really well. We've operated in uh, Iraq, Yemen, Bangladesh, Syria, uh, we were in the Bahamas after Dorian, and wow. now we're working in cartel-controlled Matamoros, um, Mexico.
1: Yeah, um, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today, because a couple weeks ago, we talked with um, Coco and Kim um, about gender and sex-based violence in the DRC, and at the end, they were like, oh, you've got to talk to Helen right. about what's going on. <laughs> yeah. In Matemora. So could you tell us, could you give us kind of a rundown of what's happening there?
2: Yeah. So to give a little bit of context to kind of the situation, you know, everybody is pretty familiar or has at least been exposed to in some degree uh, the cartel violence that has been occurring in Central and South America. There's a lot of political unrest in countries like Venezuela and Honduras. And, and Nicaragua, and then on top of that, there's also this this predominant cartel violence that happens. And and when we talk about cartel violence, you know, just to give people the clarity, like we're talking about the same types of violence that we saw with ISIS. We're talking about. Five year old children being strung up on trees and lit on fire because their parents couldn't pay mm. extortion fees that month. We're talking about women who have been brutally assaulted and raped and mutilated um, because they had a family member who, you know, crossed cartel lines and did something they weren't supposed to, they were, you know, not supposed to do. I mean, we're talking about unimaginable levels of violence. Mm. And so, there's this misconception that what's currently gone on at the border, like people commonly refer to them as migrants. And my argument is these are not migrants. These are refugees. These are people who are fleeing violence and persecution mm-hmm. in the same way that Syrians are fleeing the war. Mm-hmm. So that's been going on for for several years now that we've we've sort of had this unrest and this sort of horrible violence that's been going on down there. But the change happened in 2019. The administration adopted a policy called MPP, which is a Migrant Protection Program, otherwise known as Remain in Mexico. And basically what that said was that, you know, we've had um, existing asylum laws in our country since the 1950s after World War II. And all of those laws said that if you were you know coming to the united states fleeing persecution you know you had to meet these specific criteria you know persecution for religious political and or you know social beliefs etc etc but while you waited for your court hearing to go through you could stay in the united states in in safety and that we would you know offer you in accordance with some international policies a level of protection and services like while the court. Figured out, you know, do you qualify for asylum? Well, when MPP went into effect, that changed that policy and they said now anybody who's requesting asylum has to wait in Mexico for their asylum cases to go through. And basically, what that meant was that between Tijuana and Matamoros, about 60,000 asylum seekers and refugees were now being pushed back into cartel controlled areas. Uh, along the border areas, and if you've, you know, if you're familiar with what's been going on in border towns for the last couple of years, they're also safe. And so that policy it took effect in January of 2019 in Tijuana, and it didn't go into effect until July of 2019 in Matamoros, where we are working. Since July, there's now a camp of like 3,500 asylum seekers and refugees living, I mean, like 15 feet from either in Mexico, and their their conditions are pretty, pretty horrible. These are, they're living in tents, like little Coleman weekend camping tents. They don't have enough, you know, when we first got there, they had no bathrooms, they had no running water, they had, you know, nothing, no access to medical care. And so we, our organization, went in and started in September doing our initial assessment. And then we've been working in the camp every day since October 20th full time.
1: Since you've been there, what kind of things have you dealt with or have you seen? Yeah, so
2: I, you know, I kind of call it the normal refugee stuff, uh, you know, health concerns, you know, skating. The thing that I have a hard time explaining to people to get them to understand is that, you know, for example, when we first got there, we were seeing children who were actually going blind from pink eye, right? Like pink eye is a totally curable, normal thing for kids to experience. But when it's not treated and it becomes chronic and recurrent, they actually end up with corneal scarring that causes them to lose their vision. And they were getting pink eye because the only area that they had to bathe in was the river. And so, regardless of the fact that they were using soap and water, you're still bathing in, in dirty, infected water. And so, these kids are just getting these horrible infections. We were seeing kids who were at risk of losing their limbs because they had contracted fungal infections that had advanced so far that they were starting to, to have contracture scarring that was causing them to lose circulation. Uh, one little girl was actually losing range of motion and circulation in her arm. And she was, I mean, she was very young. She was like, maybe a year old. And so you see all these kinds of normal things, like things that we would, you know, commonly see in the United States, but they're just exacerbated to this extreme level because of the conditions that they were in. Mm -hmm. We also have, we have strong suspicion that women and children are being trafficked out of these camps. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of great oversight. You know, normally in in a displacement situation, the UN would come in, at the request of either the country that they're fleeing from or the country that's receiving them, and they would start monitoring and protection programs. They would start a registration program. You know, there's there's these formal processes that take place. But unfortunately, at the border, that's not happening because both governments are sort of unwilling to admit that this is a problem. This is happening, I mean, literally 15 feet from the U.S. border, like in one part of the camp, I can be standing at someone's tent and I can see the campus for Texas' southernmost college like right across the river. I can literally wave at people who are walking to class and they can see me. And it's like... It is the most extreme whiplash that I have ever experienced because, like, I mean, I've worked in these situations all over the world. I've been to Cox Bazaar in Bangladesh. I've been in Iraq. I've been near the Syrian border. You know, we, I I was involved in assessing the the camps in Yemen, although I wasn't physically there, but I was getting the pictures every day, of like what was you know happening in those camps, like all these kinds of things. But like, I always had to take like an eighteen hour flight to get to those places. And again, the misconception is, is people keep saying, well, these are migrants. but I'm like, no, they're not. Like, these are refugees. Like, these are people fleeing un- I mean, the stories that I have been told. This one woman that I met, she fled Honduras with her daughter. Her daughter was 10. And she was working for the police department in Honduras. She was very well respected. She was very highly educated. And she found out through her police department that she had been put on a cartel hit list her and her whole family and so she had less than 24 hours to grab her daughter and everything that she owned and and flee more so she made the decision and she was smart enough to know that she couldn't travel in the caravans because the cartel watches the caravan mm-hmm. and you know people are missing there all the time nobody goes to look for them and so she knew that she couldn't travel at the caravans. so she would only travel at night and she would only take the roads you know, the the roads that were off kind of the beaten path. And she told me stories about how her and her daughter were serially raped along the way. And I, I mean, I literally, and she's telling me just in graphic detail about like this horrible experience that she had. And I was just like, oh my God, like, I just, I hurt for you. I hurt for your daughter who's had to go through this. And she said, no, you don't understand. She said, "She said whatever the horrible situation she went through on the way up here, that is nothing compared to what they would do to her in Honduras. Mm. She said, this is better. And I, I cannot fathom a life where what is behind you is that bad that being serially raped trying to get to the United States to safety is a better option, you know? Mm-hmm. And the most, I think the most, thing of the whole thing was at the end of this like conversation where I'm just like crying because she's telling me this horrible story she said to me and she's she's like I just I really want you to know that I appreciate everything that you are doing for us because I know that this is not free I know that this costs you something to be here and I was like oh my god lady like <laughs> the cost is like not even the concern here like you know right but she would ever hear this story every day I mean our our ob went to do a forensic exam for a woman who a woman who had been sexually assaulted and, and he had asked us for a measuring tape so he could measure her scars and so we have these little five inch paper measuring tapes that we use for like wounds and stuff like that and so we brought him one and he went in and was in for a few minutes but and he came back out and he said no i i need a bigger measuring tape oh, damn. and we had to bring him a 60 inch cloth measuring tape so that he could accurately document this woman's scarring. I mean, it was just so horrific. And and we see that every day. I mean, that's a normal day for us there. You know, it's just totally shocking to me that people are just not aware of the horrible things that are happening to these people and then the positions that they're being put in as a result of the policies, you know, that the administration has adopted. Mm-hmm.
0: So when they arrive um, at the the centers and areas, it's not like they're safe. These continued harassment no. and or assaults are happening. There's and there's nobody really there to regulate it. Is that correct? Or
2: no, yeah, exactly. Now it's different because the ACA the Asylum Cooperative Agreement just put into effect, <laughs> and so that is greatly changing what's happening to them. Now they're being directly supported to Guatemala to get asylum in Guatemala, which is the biggest irony because right. um, the head of immigration in Guatemala actually just got granted asylum in the United States because it wasn't safe for her in Guatemala. Right. So like, wow. You know, <laughs> I was going right, to say, wait, right,
0: there's, like, like, that doesn't even seem to make sense because people are trying to get from Guatemala to the U.S. as well or trying to find a refugee yep. area as well.
2: Yep. I mean, it, wow. it is the biggest farce that we've created these policies. And it's so funny to me because... Any sane person could look at it and be like, this makes no sense. Like, Guatemala is also equally impacted by these same problems. Like, why are we sending people there as if it's safer? It's not safe. And, you know, to give people the the context of this, Matamoros, Mexico is in the state of Tamaulipas, and Tamaulipas, the state in Mexico, has the same security rating as Syria, according to the Department of State. It, It is a level four do not travel area. And so, and we're forcing people. To wait there on their asylum cases. I mean, we've had dozens of documented kidnaps. We've had dozens of documented assaults, um, rapes. Women are being trafficked. I mean, children are being trafficked. People go missing all the time. Like we know this, and yet, you know, it's just
0: right. It's just another day. You know, there's you know, it's sort of. It's kind of the life, the lesser evil. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know. ACA
2: is going to be equally horrible because now people just go missing. And they're so, you know, at least in in Matamoros, there's some level of oversight because it's so close to the United States that people are there to to kind of, you know, reporters go in and out. But in in Guatemala, there's no out of sight, out of mind, you know?
0: Right. My God! And out of curiosity, because one of the things that Kim and Coco were talking about was the trauma assessments. They were, they were in the DRC trying to get some assessments and just the level of treatment that's needed, especially like psychological as well as uh, trauma-based. I know you were saying you were doing a lot of the medical. Do you guys even have the time to do those levels of assessments as well, especially with the gender-based violence, or is it just pretty much meet the basic needs so they can survive?
2: A little bit of both we're working on, you know, we do have collaborative partners in the area providing some mental health resources, and we're working on trying to figure out how we address those needs, you know, in in a population that's very transient and is, you know, kind of moving around constantly. But a lot of it is, you know, like, we're just just trying to get basic healthcare to them. You know, that's like step one. You know, they got to, survive the pneumonia that they got from living in a tent on a 30-degree night before we can actually start to address the long-term needs of mental and psychological support. But we've done a couple of things like created women's groups that meet every Friday so that women can just, you know, kind of gather and and talk about whatever it is that they want to talk about. You know, sort of free-forming and and sort of free-flowing for them to kind of, they can address issues, they can just sit there and listen to music and have some coffee, they can, you know, do whatever kind of things just have that little bit of normalcy in their life we've also started addressing the psychological support for kids mm-hmm. so often in humanitarian situations and in disaster situations you know people will see these kids you know playing, and they're oh look like aren't they they're still so, well you know look at them just being kids isn't that so great and like in reality like these kids have experienced unimaginable levels of trauma right. that like yeah, okay. It may, it may not be like impacting them right now, but like mm-hmm. wait till they're twenty-five and they're a heroin addict because you know right. they've they've had this unimaginable childhood trauma that just never got dealt with. So um, right. we actually started a child safe space where we have—I mean, it's just—it's like a little playroom. They've got some toys, they've got awesome. some some bright colors, the friendly face, they've got books, and they can go in and and just kind of be kids for like ten or fifteen right. minutes a day, yeah. um, and kind of have that
0: separation so right well i wonder how normal this is to them like all that trauma that we see that we know is bad and is gonna affect them they're like well this is a normal day so this is a part of my childhood i'm gonna go ahead and play here and be assaulted here and they just kind of move on not realizing this is not normal and it shouldn't be normal for you yeah oh
1: my
2: god it's so I mean, like I, there was a one little girl, Andrea and I, um, one of the awesome people that I work with, we were walking in the camp and these little girls came up to us and we were just chatting with them. And we were like, oh, you know, like, why Why did you come? Like, why are you here? And she said, oh, you know, and she said it. Oh, my God. She said it like it was this was just an average day. She goes, oh, you know, because my cousins got machetes, you know, chop, 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 where they get where they get hacked up. Oh do you want goodness. to see pictures? Oh and we were God. like, oh my God, no. Like, we do not want to see pictures. Right. Um, and then she was like, well, do you want to see my Barbies? And we're like, yeah, show, yes. us, show us the Barbies. <laughs>
0: that is such but
2: a... That's, I mean, yeah, I think, like, I mean, it is just so... I mean, these poor kids are just going to grow up with, like, right. unimaginable trauma because of what they've had in, in their childhood. It's mm-hmm. just
0: unreal and you know, the, they think that's the norm that's just yeah. the most heartbreaking part of the whole situation that it is it's like hey someone got murdered in my family hey you want to see my barbie and it goes hand in hand for them as childhood like yeah. then that's yeah. the most unfortunate part and and i feel like oftentimes especially with the climate today when we're talking about uh, politics they take their normalcy, so them not maybe overreacting and being traumatized that we see in Hallmark movies and or in the U.S. alone, maybe, that that's, they're fine. See, they're great. They're okay. They can cope where they are instead of saying, no, this is a problem for all of us as humans and we need to see how yeah. wrong this is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's
2: just insane to me that that this has become... Sort of the acceptable norms. Right. You know, everybody was so outraged by family separation, you know, but like, it's, it's we haven't seen that same level of outrage since MPP has gone into effect and since, and since ACA has gone into effect.
1: Right. And speaking of that, uh, I know you've touched on it a little bit and how it's changing, but when, when refugees arrive what happens next? Like, what in theory is supposed to happen?
0: Yeah, can you give us a route of what happens when they are, their dreams are dashed, essentially, or when they're actually a possibility that they could be sent to a safe yeah. s- safe space?
2: Yeah, so so what should happen is that they get allowed into the United States to wait for the appropriate uh, asylum hearings in the court, you know, that they have representation and a lawyer and all this kind of stuff. That's what's supposed to happen. After the ACA went into effect, and it went into effect in November, now what happens is when anybody finally reaches the U.S.-Mexico border and they present to a port of entry to ask for asylum, first of all, um, there are very specific words that they have to say in a very specific order. It's almost like the magic words, Mm -hmm. the set of words and the order in which those words to be said actually constantly changes. CBP changes the requirement quite frequently. So regardless of the fact that somebody is trying to tell you that they fear for their life, uh, if they don't specifically say those words, I fear for my life, mm-hmm. if I go back to X, Y, and Z, that doesn't count as, as an appeal for asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't specifically ask for asylum, if they say, I want to be safe in the United States, that doesn't count. They have to say, I want asylum in the United States. They can't say, if I go home, I'm going to be tortured. And they're going to kill me they have to say if i go home i'm afraid that i will be killed um and then not only that but then they actually have to know who's going to do it um like the us has actually put the burden of proof on these people to prove that they will be persecuted and killed right like how do you prove that somebody's going to kill you like i mean you know what i mean like our our friend ray actually got asylum from cuba he Was having issues because he came out as being gay, mm-hmm. and when he went in for his questioning with CDP, they said, Well, how do we know you're gay? Oh, and I was like, Ray, how did you prove that? <laughs> like, and he was like, He was like, you know, and I was like, Hey, listen, no judgment, whatever you got to do, you know, like, I'm, wow. I'm happy
0: for you. That is so debasing just to have to say, Oh, let me prove what is being persecuted, like my persecution essentially right. to you in the most. The meaning way I can think of because you have to have proof. Right. And it's crazy because,
2: I mean, the thing, I mean, the stories that we hear out of court, the things that individuals are told are just insane. You know, things like, well, I'm sorry you were kidnapped, but it doesn't sound like you were tortured enough to qualify for asylum. (laughs) Like, what? Right. Right. Like... I mean, and these are like, this is legitimate. Like, this is what they're being told right. is like, I'm sorry your child was killed. But because you don't have pictures of his charred body being taken out of the tree, mm. you actually can't prove his death. And therefore, you don't qualify for asylum. Right. Like, just just insane thing. So, so now what's actually happening is that when they get to the border and they don't say their special magic words, they're actually being immediately deported as as being at the border without an appropriate visa documentation. If they actually say the right magic words in the right order, then they're getting in, and that's when the Asylum Cooperative Agreement, otherwise called ACA, that's when ACI takes effect. And what happens is they are immediately taken into custody to these detention centers, and from there, they have no due process. They're not allowed. To, they're not allowed to make a phone call. They're not allowed to call a lawyer. They're not allowed to talk with anyone. Um, The detention centers actually use known forms of torture. They're they're not fun places to be. They keep the ambient temperatures of the room unnaturally cold, like around 60 degrees. They're not allowed to wear jackets. They're not given blankets. They're given the Mylar sheets for their blankets. They're not allowed to wear shoes. The lights are kept on 24 hours a day the LED lights that they use actually make an audible hum that mm-hmm. is, you can actually hear. Like, And it's the same as like Chinese water torture. Mm-hmm. They're not provided with beds to sleep on. They're not allowed to touch or talk to any of the other people surrounding them. They are quite literally kept in chain-link cages. Um, like, these are all very similar tactics that are used on the international circuit for like interrogating terrorists. And we're doing this to children and, and like, pregnant women. I mean, that is just, like, to me, like, I, I'm just like, oh, my God, like, we are so lost in our priorities here. So when they get to detention, uh, they're not allowed their phone call. They're basically sort of sequestered off, and then they're immediately turned around and put on a flight to Guatemala. And they're not told that they're going to Guatemala. We found this out recently because of contact. In, in Guatemala that we've been coordinating with. Um, they're also not told that they can apply for asylum in Guatemala. So imagine that you've just made this horrible 45-day journey you know, from your home where somebody has threatened to kill you or maybe has killed all of your family or killed your children, and you finally make it to the United States and you say the right magic words in the right order and you have all of your proof in hand only to then be put on a flight and flown basically right back to where you came from.
1: Yeah, that's horrific. That's like the most awful gaming of the system. To to be like, oh yeah, here's this opportunity. Here we we have this chance for you, and then really, it's rigged. So- yeah. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the entire system that we have right now is set up to discriminate against anyone coming to the United States under the status of asylum or, or refugees, and I think mm-hmm. that that. You know, we in the nineteen forties we turned away Jews who were fleeing from Germany and Poland and France as the you know, the Nazi regime was, was, you know, capturing and detaining people. And history does not look kindly back on that. You know, I think (laughs) I think everyone can look back at our history and say, you know, that was a a gross mistake on our part. Mm -hmm. We should never have done that. We should have we should have stepped up and, and taken care of these people and provided them you know, with with safety and with refuge. And yet here we are doing the exact same things again. And it's like we haven't learned our lesson,
1: you know, and that's unfortunate. Right. Very. (laughs) Yeah, I keep thinking about on the Statue of Liberty what it says and...
0: And the fact that the president was like, "I'm willing to change it." God, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. Right now, I'm a little appalled. I'm trying to shake it off a little bit. <laughs> I'm having to take a deep breath, and I yeah. can't imagine you're seeing this every damn day. How do you? He- oh yeah. The, and we're gonna come back to, but I just gotta know: How do you keep yourself sane in this? Because just hearing this, and and I, again, like in my field, I only worked with kids who were in the state and in the state of Georgia, and we had a few uh, refugees with us, and we had a few that were on visas, and I had to try my best to be like, hey, I'm so sorry, but you might not want to ask for this kind of help right now because this kind of help may get you deported. And like being heartbroken, just being able, having to tell them that with that small fear of them being deported, I can't imagine being in an area where they're being told daily, yeah, no, your trauma is not good enough for you to go find safety in a haven and in a place that could offer that for you. How do you deal with all that?
2: I mean, I think for me, it's, i don't know. I, you know, everybody kind of has their own their own way of dealing with things. Um, you know, this is definitely a very different type of trauma than we experienced, like in Iraq. You know, where we were seeing gunshot wounds and blast injuries and stuff come in. You know, and you sort of have this like compartmentalization that sort of you know takes over, and you just sort of shove your emotions deep down into the pits of your gallbladder and hope that you don't ever see them again. Right. But this is different because, you know, you, you like we know these families, you know, we've known them over the course of months and we see them and their kids and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I am a really highly paid therapist. Um, <laughs> I think that that's like step one yes. is sort of acknowledging your trauma and being like, you know, if this isn't screwing me up, it probably should be. Right. And so I'm not sure which is more of a problem is like, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but I think also it would be a lot harder for me it wasn't doing something. Right. I think it would be harder to pallet if I if I wasn't actively taking action and working to help these people in some way. And you know, when I talk to people, that's the thing that I tell people then like, listen, I'm a thirty two year old blonde chick from Florida that's like running a refugee camp at the border for thirty five hundred people. Like mm-hmm. don't tell me that you're not capable of making some kind of change. Like I promise you there's push you to work. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think the hard thing for a lot of Americans, like, you know, I think we look around currently in the state of affairs in our country and like, this is totally like my own personal rant and not the rant of the organization. But like, (laughs) you know, like we, we look around and like, we see all these things happening, right? Like we're seeing all these injustices against people of color and, you know, the LGBTQ community and, you know, all of these terrible things that are happening. And I think so many people feel helpless should do anything about it because they think, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm just a 32 year old blonde chick from Florida. Like I can't change national policy. I can't, you know, help 3,500 refugees at the border. Like what am I going to do? I'm just one person. Mm -hmm. And I I think that people have been brainwashed to believe that because Mm -hmm. you absolutely can like, listen, I'm a 32 year old chick from Florida, and I'm running a camp for 3,500 people, and I'm keeping them alive on a daily basis. Like, I promise you, there is something you can do. Right. And if we all just do that one thing, right. regardless of whether it's you know the border crisis or you know you know First Amendment right attacks on a First Amendment rights or or you know working to improve policing policies to ensure that they're equitable and that they're, you know, not targeting people of color unjustly, you know, whatever it is that you choose to put your energy into, like, I promise you, you can do something about this, you literally just have to do it. Mm -hmm. That's it. I think if we, I think people will feel so much differently about it if they would just start getting to work, you know, that's kind of it.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a great message for um, our listeners are really awesome, um, and they love having those things. Like, what can I do? because right. they they want to help, and I I feel the same way. Like, I love I love that whole idea of just you can find something. Right, there's something for you that you can help.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's going out in your front yard every day and holding a sign, you know, that says "Slow Down" in my neighborhood. You know, like <laughs> whatever it is, like there's it's the inaction that we have right now that's just paralyzing us as a nation Um, because we expect the government to do it. And like, I'll be honest with you. I got really tired of waiting for the government to show up and fix problems. Right. Like their track record so far has also been terrible, pretty terrible. If you look at the war on homelessness, the war on drugs, like any of the wars on that they've created have all ended in pretty catastrophic policy. Right. Right. Um, so I was like, you know what, they're not going to do it, fine. I will, you know, I'll
1: figure it out. Right. And that's something we hear a lot when we talk to, when we have people on the show and also when we research women of the past that have done something is like seeing, well, no one else is doing it. I'm just going to have to do it. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Did want to ask about uh, the state, what of uh, the locals there? Like how how is that situation? How are they handling this
2: there's a lot of, um, unfortunately, sort of systemic biases in Central and South America against other countries. In Mexico, specifically, there is a lot of resentment towards Central and South Americans who are coming up. And in Matamoros, that resentment has kind of spilled over into the community. And so it's controversial. And it's not black, like it's we saw this in Bangladesh as well. You know, imagine that you and your family, you know, have been living in this country for years and by this country, I mean, Mexico. And then all of a sudden, and like you're starving and you don't have access to medicine and you're impoverished and all these kinds of things. And then imagine that like these other groups of people show up and like, they're also pretty bad off, but like they get help and you don't, mm-hmm. you know, that's not always fair. And so it creates a lot of resentment in a lot of communities. And so, one of the ways that we try to address that is that as an organization we see everybody. We don't turn away. We've had locals from the community come and see us for free access to medical care and we see them just the same as we would see someone who was living in the camp. And we've tried to be, you know, good neighbors and that we try to take care of the area that we're in and keep it clean and keep it nice. And and that's something that, you know, we've we've worked here and hard to to try and keep up. So you know, I'm hoping that 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 sentiment starts to change, but I mean, for many of those people, they're they're in equally terrible situations, right. and so it's, you know it's very challenging.
1: You've already touched on some some of the ways that women are specifically being impacted. I'm wondering if there, if you have any other insight, have you seen? patterns are are just things that are specific to women in this whole situation. Yeah,
0: you had mentioned about um, the fact that the women and children, you think there's obvious signs of trafficking happening within the camps as well and that no one's necessarily safe just because they're there. What exactly is the impact? What is the level um, that's happening?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we know, statistically speaking, that in areas of conflict and war, that women and children are far more likely to experience the negative impact of that. They're more likely to be economically underserved. They're more likely to have, you know, less access to humanitarian resources. They're more likely to be targeted, you know, for things like trafficking and and acts of violence and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in general, they're just more vulnerable populations. I think that the biggest issue that we have is that because, like, we just don't know how bad they're being targeted. You know, we don't know how bad the situation really is because the response is being coordinated and funded at the private level, which is, like, by the way, unheard of, right? Like humanitarian responses are generally funded by the UN or by the countries that that are experiencing these crises. And and we're talking about in millions of dollars, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars range. That's not happening in Las Vegas and it's not happening all along the border. These are all privately funded responses. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we lack the resources to really fully understand how these women are are being and, and how like the LGBTQ community that's there is really being impacted. And so that's something that we're likely not going to know the full results of for years, you know?
1: I guess sort of related and you definitely already touched on this a little bit with regards to um, calling people migrants when we should be using the term refugees. What do you think the media gets wrong in reporting this, and what do you wish the general public would take away from this conversation?
2: Yeah, so, so my big thing is parking on, on the terminology, right? Like the migrants versus refugees. And then, you know, people get into the whole, like, well, they're technically asylum seekers. They can't be a refugee until they've had an asylum process and and my my statement is that is you know we're not calling the syrians who are fleeing syria asylum seekers you know like mm-hmm. we just kind of give them the credit of their situation and say refugee so you know the the semantics of that really kind of are frustrating i think one of the things that has not been well reported in Matamoros specifically, is, like, just how terrible these conditions are. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of these people have been living in this camp since July of last year. They're going through extremes in temperature. I mean, just incredibly hot, you know, 100-plus degree days, rain, you know, all of the terrible, you know, like, imagine a camping trip that just, like, never ends, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I once sort of jokingly described it as like the worst music festival you've ever been to where it's like the last day, all the fun drugs are gone. There's, you know, human feces everywhere. The bathrooms are overflowing. There's no food and it's raining and everybody's miserable, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and like, they're living in this every day. And I think that when media comes in and they charge do these slack, you know, like we're going to get our 15 minutes of footage and then we're out. They're sort of missing, like, yeah, like you go over for 15 minutes and it's like not so bad. You know, you're there a day or two or three or whatever, and it's, you know, it feels okay. Like maybe it feels like, you know, you get back to your hotel with your air conditioning at night and you're like, oh, I'm beat, you know, what mm-hmm. a long day, right? But like, there are people who don't leave that situation. Mm-hmm. They have nowhere to go, they have no reprieve. And imagine doing that months on end. Mm-hmm. And then imagine that, like, your alternative is, like, if you get sent back home, you're going to die. I mean, Human Rights Watch just followed 200 El Salvadorians back to El Salvador who had been deported from the United States, either for failed asylum claims or for just regular deportation for being undocumented in the country. And within the first year, 138 of them were murdered. The other 62 of them had either experienced extortion torture, kidnap, or some type of other physical abuse that put their life at risk. And we're sending people back by the thousand, you know? And I think the other thing that that really gets missed is like just how terrible the conditions are and how bad the safety situation is in a lot of these countries. I think that we have sort of, you know, the, the media has sort of put this focus on people who are coming here as, quote, you know, migrants, like meaning they're just looking for better jobs and in reality it's like fleeing that kind of violence it does not make you a migrant it makes you a refugee
1: yeah and it to have it as you said so close to our border like it's just happening It's just right there so what do you foresee in the future both for this project and for yourself what are you hoping will happen
2: so we're planning to be in the camp in Matamoros until probably about August. We're sort of anticipating that as sort of second and third cases get heard in court, people are either going to get you know admitted into the United States through the asylum process or they will get supported because they'll, their asylum process will have failed. Mm. Now that ACA has gone into effect, we are already anticipating the need for a medical response in Guatemala. Um, and we're in the early phases of, of doing some investigation and figuring out where people are going and how we can help and to provide them with whatever support and resources that they need. Mm-hmm. And so I think along with that, the other goal that we have as an organization is really to start engaging the community around us all of those people out there who are like feeling totally helpless, listening to these, you know, terrible stories and saying, Oh my God, someone should help them. Like that person is you, Mm -hmm. you know, that person was me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like we need, you know, as an organization, we need help in all areas. We need accounting help, logistics help. You know, I need people who can translate documents into Spanish. I need people who can translate documents into French. Like I promise you People have a skill that we can put to work, and if we would all just collectively together stand up and get to work, these problems would start to get fixed, right. right? Like, we would start to see solutions. And so, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's the other goal is that, you know, hopefully when we do these kinds of outreach that we can continue to motivate people to get engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, to start taking action because, you know, I don't, you know, if you can't, if you've got a family and kids and a job and all that kind of stuff and you can't drop everything and head to, to Guatemala with us, like, I got it. But like, you know, can you, can you reshare a social media post? I mean, that's a simple click, you know, can you, um, you know, take, take an hour out of your weekend to help us vet volunteers to go down and work? I mean, that's a simple, it's done on the computer, you know, there's all these simple things that people could do. That ultimately still results in the end goal, and that, you know, that's what we're hoping to do is inspire a whole, a whole nation of doers who just get out there and start getting to work. Right.
0: Love it, yeah. 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 I just gave uh, Annie a really wistful look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. It makes me hopeful to hear people fighting. Yeah. To make this. And you were talking about all amazing things that people can get involved in, all the things that you might need as your organization. What specifically, how specifically can our listeners jump on board to be a part of that? Where can we find you? Where can they go look?
2: So we're on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash global response management. You can also find us on our website, which is global-response.org. And if you go onto our webpage, you'll see in the upper right-hand corner, there's actually a link that says Take Action, and that'll take you to the volunteer page, the donate page. You know, it'll talk to you about, you know, donating medical supplies, all those kinds of things. And so that's the easiest way. There's also, um, if you run a business and you do cool technology stuff, you know, there's a, a link on there to send an email to us to talk about doing partnerships with us. One of the ways that we're able to go and do what we do so successfully is that we... We rely heavily on innovation and technology, so that we're working smarter and not harder in these areas. And so, we have cool partnerships that we've started with other uh, with other organizations and stuff. So, if you run a cool business and you're innovative and and sort of in that field, you know, you can also hit us up that way. So, those are the and then we're also on Instagram global dot response. Um, you can follow our work and, and sort of see what we're doing all over the world. So, um, you know, the easiest, fastest way for people to donate is to just kick us five bucks or you know to get involved you know money makes the world go round and we have to pay for everything from you know medical supplies and equipment to country registration to you know travel for for key individuals who are flying out to run projects and and do you know humanitarian monitoring assessment and things like that so it's simple as a couple of clicks it's global-response.org slash donate um and it'll take you right to the spot and you know We're a 501c3, so it's all tax deductible. And then, you know, just spreading the word and and telling your friends and following the work that we're doing. And every time you see, like, great work, like, it's simple as, like, hitting share and just being like, hey, like, look at what these great people are doing. I think we're great and biased, but, um, (laughs) you know, like... Look at, look at what they're doing and how they're changing the world and isn't this awesome. And I mean, that's honestly how we've gotten where we've been is just word of mouth about, you know, people who have been, you know, impressed with our work. And then obviously all, I always tell people that if you have rich aunts or uncles, I don't have them, <laughs> but if you do, we want to meet them because <laughs> that's how, that's how we keep, you know, keep organizations running is people's very wonderful rich aunts and aunties and uncles, you know, contributing to our efforts and things like that. So so that's the easiest way for for people to get involved. And then, you know, shooting us emails and figuring out how you can get involved to help with all of the other things. We can do that too.
1: I love that. Go bother your rich aunt and uncles. Official recommendation of the episode. (laughs) Perfect. I
2: keep asking my family. I'm like, so like, who's going to marry? Like, who's going to... Because like, you know, right? Like you, you, guys, need you, one know, person. you guys are good for like, yeah, I was like, you guys are good for like the $1,500, you know, Christmas time. But like, come on, who's, I need, I need someone to like take one for the team and right. like marry into like the Rockefellers or something. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, perfect. Come on now. <laughs> Easy plan. Easy plan. Yeah, yeah. We, got, we got this. So simple.
2: <laughs> Thank you guys for the opportunity to talk about our work. You know, we're, we're always excited to share what we're doing with people. And I'm always eager to motivate people out there to to take action and to get involved. I mean, I, I tell people frequently, like I, I am a basic white girl, right? Like I love my leggings and my, and my Starbucks and my, like, I am nothing special, you know, like other than I just, I figured out that I got tired of waiting for the government to solve our problems. And I just got to work. I mean, that's the only that's that's the only thing about me that that's maybe a little bit different, and so um, I always I always look for those opportunities to courage and and sort of motivate other people to get out there and really start making change because that's that's the only way that that we're going to actually start seeing this kind of change that we're looking for that we believe in for our country.
1: That brings us to the end of our interview. But we do have a little bit more for you listeners. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh.
0: So if you're ready to try some of the delicious food from HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80 and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off, including free
1: shipping on your first box. That's HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80 and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off and free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks everywhere, and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite brow product that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have professional quality products at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use arches and halos because of how well done the formulas are. And they are half the price of department store brands. They have eight color shades to choose from. Everything
0: from sunny blonde to auburn to charcoal. Everyone is represented. They cater to women and men of all brow shapes and sizes. Embrace your natural brow. And they're all about individuality. Brow
1: tools for all looks and style needs. You can use for dramatic or natural look. They have an amazing range of products, too, from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, gels, all kinds of things. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos Professional Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, we know that a lot of that was probably not easy to hear, but so... So necessary. And also, I love in talking to Helen, she just had this this outlook of you can make a difference. You can make a change. So be sure to check out all of the things she mentioned if this is something that you found impactful or something you want to be involved in. In the meantime, you can look out for our episode with Coco and Kim in the coming weeks. It is coming. It did happen. (laughs) And you can also check out our book of the month for Feminist Book Club. It is Ash by Melinda Lowe. Which had the 10th anniversary last year. So we're excited to revisit it. Yes. Yes. For those who don't know, it is a retelling of a popular fairy tale Uh, I don't really want to spoil it, but you should should get in on this book
0: club. I already posted it up on our social media, and I've already got a couple of comments on it. So, you know, people are
1: interested. I'm excited. Yes, and I'm also excited about our movie pick of this month, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, if you want to follow along with that. I believe it's still on Netflix. If not, sorry about it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really good, and it's sort of like a... It's not a horror movie. I wouldn't label it that way. Um, it does have to deal with vampires. It does have vampire. It does have some vengeance. It has some vengeance. It has some violence. I just... I it wouldn't does. call it a horror, but... It's very cinematic, for sure. It is very cinematic. Yes, yes. Um And... If you have any ideas for what should be next month's book pick or movie pick, you can send them to us. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thank you. Thanks to our interviewee, Helen Perry. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Steph Home Never Told You, production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Rocker Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality, at our inability to get basic things done, at the persistence of systemic racism? You're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point, but which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,